In the 2003 SDCF symposium panel entitled Adventurous Producers, Michael Greif, James Nicola, and Jordan Roth talk about developing new work and the relationship between producers and directors. The discussion is moderated by Ruben Polendo. The following program is a recording of the conversation that took place. Hello, I'm SDC director Daniel Sullivan, and you are listening to Masters of the Stage. This program is produced by the Stage Directors and Choreographers Foundation and presented by SDCF and the American Theater Wing. The SDCF has released these archives in an effort to further education regarding the crafts of direction and choreography. Because this program was not initially recorded for the purpose of broadcast, it is not of the highest technical quality. Portions of the conversation may have been edited to improve the overall quality of the broadcast. Hi, and welcome to uh, Adventurous Producers. The, the first, when, when Joe first approached me about uh, this panel, I, I was very perplexed by the title of it initially. Um, and I, I thought I would actually start with that broad of a question. Uh, again, we have, uh, you know, a director, producer, director, different um, sort of camps in, in this, this strange creature called theater. And I, I wonder if, if each of you could talk a little bit of, of what, um, how you define that word, producer? What does that mean? Because I think it's something that um, has changed a lot uh, in the last in the last few years where I think um, you know when one envisions the sort of 1950s version of Get on the money, I'm the producer sort of, you know, to, to uh, someone who's actually much more present uh, in what the work is about um, so I'd love to hear perhaps uh, starting with you maybe Michael about Okay, although I think I'm going to defer because I'm the inactive producer on the panel Great. so um, maybe after we hear from the producers on the panel love uh, when I was a producer, or what producing relationships are, are wonderful to me. Great. George, do you want to sure. talk a little bit about um, Well, I mean, I guess what you're sort of getting at is in the commercial theater world, which is what I can speak to, um, right now it seems that there are money producers and there are creative producers. Oftentimes, the creative producer is also a money producer, um, but that list of five to sometimes twelve or fifteen names at the top of the title, uh, above the title of the play, are not in there, you know, giving notes and stirring the soup. Um, I think what what becomes problematic is when nobody from the producing team is is a part of the creative team. To me, producing is uh, being an, an equal and active member of the creative team with the director and choreographer and designers. Um, not just so that you can say, no, no, that turning table costs too much. Um, but you have another perspective. You have, hopefully, the perspective of the audience. Um, that's what I, and that's what, what I strive to do as a producer. Well, I think, um, <clears throat> sadly, the role of producer, the idea of producer, the word producer, um, 
evoke something in most directors' minds. This was a room full of directors, I assume. Um, <clears throat> which, oops, uh, is maybe not helpful. Because, um, I, I mean, my sense of it over the years is that uh, many directors think producer means that he or she who writes the check to make my vision happen or he or she who can realize what I want to do and I've got to get my hooks into them so I can get what I want. Um, and I think it's a, um, you know, at, at the end of the 19th century, really, the role uh, or concept, the idea of the identity of the director emerged in Western theater. Um, and before that, it was actors, writers, and managers um, and I think the idea of uh, artistic director is a relatively contemporary manifestation. And so the rules and ideas are very unclear or un, uh, not agreed on. Um, and if I were to really speak to me as a producer, I would have to say sitting right here would have to be Lynn Moffat, the managing director, because uh, <clears throat> if you look at the idea of producer meaning that some play happens, um, there are many, 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 many skills, talents, uh, capacities that go into that happening. And I personally have not many. And I'm reliant on someone, a partner like Lynn, to be, to make, we, we make one whole thing. <laughs> um, <clears throat> am I, is that yeah, answering what you're asking? I would like to see the idea of producer taken out of the side of management or administration and thought of as an artist uh, by everyone in the theater. Because I really think the more that a producer identifies himself as an artist, the better the work gets. Certainly, I have found as a director who's had the real terrific opportunity to work with Jim as a producer, uh, you do get a sense of someone who is an artist and someone who's spurring you on and someone who's asking the largest kind of questions that sometimes get lost in the day-to-day -day workings and mechanics of what you're doing. It, it, it's, it's always like a, a, a jump start or a great tune-up. I think you know Jim's sense of timing is pretty spectacular in terms of when he's present, when he's not present, when he gets involved, when he doesn't get involved. And uh, I've, I've been in the, uh, the nonprofit world. I've been uh, worked in the commercial world. I've worked in the regional theater world. And it, it's sort of remarkable how different the producing models are. When, when I worked in the regional theater, and some people who were here knew me then, very happy. Um, I, I felt a great responsibility to uh, the audience and the subscription and to the season. You know, and I ultimately was very happy to leave that job because I felt like uh, I was getting less and less and less of a connection to the artists I was even inviting to be part of those seasons. You know, I felt like so much of my time and energy was consumed with serving, and this is a good thing, you know, the public. I felt I was really losing a sense of myself as a director and even a kind of artistic director like Jim is. 
who really can take the time and opportunity to be that much a part, you know, of each piece's development. Because I felt like I was scrambling from project to project, and my focus was just different. Um, and as Jordan uh, alludes to, I I've had the opportunity to work with some wonderful producers in the commercial arena, uh, who really work very hard and find, um, you know, great joy in being part of the artistic process, as you say. And I worked with others who were very happy to say, you know, here it is, you do it, or some unhappy experiences where it's just, I'd like you to do this, this, and this, and there isn't any kind of collaborative experience. It's, I hired you to do a job because you have the skills that I don't have to do. And uh, you, unfortunately, I have unfortunately, and I think many people in my position have unfortunately run into those kinds of you know, producers, too. But uh, it's remarkable how the job, how fluid the job is and how it changes from person to person and setting to setting. You know, I, I want to dovetail on something that um, you just mentioned and you touched on it as well, Jim, which is um, this notion of uh, you know, when Joe sat down to try to come up with you know, adventures and he was to talk um, with, I'm fascinated that, that we have um, two, and, and for now we'll sort of touch on when you were artistic director of Hoya. So we have two artistic directors on stage, and, and so um, the notion that there's just, you know, it, uh, is the idea of a producer, and this one becomes synonymous with artistic director, but what would you find that relationship to be? Well, I think in the, personally, I'll just go, <clears throat> I think in day-to-day, uh, -day, uh, as we understand it, or as I understand it, producers, you tend to find people with that title uh, who are working in the commercial world and the artistic directors are working in the not-for-profit world. And there are many similarities to the functions on a day-to-day -day basis. But I think the, the, uh, the tasks, the aims, in many ways are very different. Um, <clears throat> for example, I don't think I would, I would last two seconds as a commercial producer. I don't have the right personality, the right skills. Uh, I couldn't do it. Um, at least as I understand it, what that job is in New York now. Um, I think what I, a difference is that I think a producer has the great luxury of focusing on one show pretty much, this one right now, and it is everything. The challenge I think for that is that you have to find an audience from scratch every time you start. And even within that there's advantages, but that's a real tough thing to do and I don't know how to do that. Um, I'm, I have a zero instinct as a marketing person or as a promoter or a, you know, someone that can make, whip up some excitement about something. <clears throat> I feel like I'm uh, <laughs> listening, I feel I'm, I can listen to the artists, try to imagine where they're trying to get to in a process from where they are now and try to envision what that might be and then try to figure out how to help make that happen. And uh, we have a core audience. And then we do have to sell some single tickets beyond our core audience. And I have to think a little bit about uh, talking to the managing director, the marketing director, about what I think might be the right context to present this work to the obvious first line of people who are going to buy tickets to this play. 
So in other words, we might want to aim a single ticket marketing campaign for Paul Rudnick's Valhalla to, the, to a very different group of people than might want to buy a ticket to uh, Kia Corthron's Light Raise the Roof. They're, those people that are going to be the most likely to buy a ticket are going to be different groups, probably. Um, and then I can think a little bit about you know, what's going to interest that group or that group. But it's the marketing people. And I think, um, I think Jordan, for example, has a tremendous sense of uh, the contextualizing for an audience. Um, and I think I'm, I also have to think about uh, this as a place, as an institution in the community, as a, as a community resource that uh, sits alongside things like schools and hospitals and um, churches. This is a theater and this is a place where we try to invite people in to come on a regular basis and uh, be given something to walk out the door with that's going to improve or their lives or challenge them or stimulate them or something. And I think to do that over, to think about that over a year, let's say, of time, over 12 months, and pick out five, six, seven things or artists um, that are going to make a lively conversation. And then to think about two or three or four seasons and what that's going to look like is, is the challenge that I have to think about a lot. You, you spoke of, um, in the commercial sort of situation, that, you know, that is, there is this one focus. Uh, and that, you know, that tends to be a little bit of the case, and you know, perhaps you can speak a little about that, Jordan, but also about um, if, in fact, there is this one project, um, how do you, how do you um, what is your journey to, in fact, find that thing that you feel that you can pursue for X amount of time, or you know, how, how does um, sort of that appear on your radar and, and something you pursue? Basically, how do you pick a project that you can tell? Yeah, yeah, and how, yes, and how, how, and how do you, um, how do you, when do you decide, this is what I'm going to now devote, you know, we'll go for it with this one? Yeah, it's an interesting thing. It, it's sort of, you smell it. Um, do you really think about selling it in that moment, or is it something that's more personal? Both. I, I'm, I'm trying to, uh, part of my own sort of learning curve is training myself to think about the selling, or not, not let the passion personal part get carried away too much before I figure out that I can't sell this to anybody. Right. Um, or, you know, I, I just, I, I, I'm coming to really understand commercial theater as a very specific place. It, it's a, I'm coming to understand Broadway in particular as a, a kind of work, not a platform for work. Um, that and there are some exceptions to that. I mean, you know, if here's our sort of circle of the kind of work, you can push a little bit. But for the most part, you know, because it, it's a business, um, and it's a hugely risky business, even if you think it's a completely right demographic hit, and you you um, you succeed in, in the project that you set out to do. I mean, I think that you can. You can have a completely fabulously realized project that is ill-conceived for a Broadway arena, and 
that's not a success. Um, I think, you know, if, if we're choosing to work in commercial theater, we're, we are then saying part of what we measure success by is financial success. Um, otherwise, there are fabulous other places to present work. There's, there are regional theaters, there are not-for-profit theaters, there are I mean, something like the Donkey Show is sort of a hybrid between those. Is we made our own economic structure um, to, to kind of house what's right for that show. And, and frankly, being able to make our own rules um, and our own economic model has, is what has made that show continue. Um, Maybe um, in addition to financial success, you're also talking about finding a product that continues to interest audiences Absolutely. you know, in the best possible populist way. It seems to me that the commercial theater is interested in developing audiences, and the nonprofit world is interested in developing the product or the art. And that's, uh, that's simplistic, and it might be erroneous, but that seems to be, one seems to be a lab for the process itself and the people who make the thing and making the things and the other is how to put the things out there and get a lot of people to come and appreciate and continue to be interested well, in I don't think it. the not-for-profit theater is not interested in audiences No, but I think wonderfully their situations are set up in a way that they're not dependent on audiences in the same way and their forums are structured so they don't need to attract the numbers that will imply financial success and that's and the longevity. Yes. I mean, when you start to think, yes. I need, can I get five years of people to come to this? If it um, stays alive. Pardon? If it stays alive for that long. Yeah. Right. And I think, I mean, I completely agree with, with how you sort of differentiate it. for us to talk yeah. through those two. But I also, uh, places. I mean, to me, I, I, don't, I don't think that's a, a sort of bad thing about commercial theater. I think that project of commercial theater um, requires quiet down Jordan I, mean, I think that was probably me Sorry. requires um, a, a large audience on the other side of the footlights to complete the project um, it, it sort of when it when it's right it's built into how the show is constructed um, now, you know, ideally, the room is, is the, the majority of the room are, in fact, directors. And, and so it's interesting that in your case, Mark, where you lived in both worlds, creating work and uh -huh. creating work. And so I, I wonder if you could speak a little bit, having a, a sense of at least um, the landscape of both. What pieces for you, um, to producers in one world or the other, what pieces do they put in place for you as a director, if that makes sense? I don't think I understand that question. What, what, what role? I mean, it, it, it seems that it play, they play uh -huh. different roles yeah. in, in, different, in the different lessons. So I wonder, for you as a director... Well, I, you know, my, my accidental entry into the commercial theater, I think, is, is very unique. And it might be presumptuous, but I assume that rent is one of those things that actually exists a little out of that broader circle, although it's widened the circle, and then other things like it try to be in the circle with varying success. And I'm thrilled to say it continues to be successful in that circle to varying degrees, but there are enough things, there are enough things about rent that feel like the more traditional inhabitants of that circle, I think, to keep that circle healthy, and enough things outside of that circle to keep healthy as well. 
so, you know, I, I came to the commercial world um, very accidentally and with Jim, you know, creating a work that felt to me very much like the purpose of the work was uh, uh, really to develop the artists involved with making the work. We, we did not have an eye toward an audience. We had an eye toward developing a musical and an eye toward developing ourselves as people who could make a musical, although we were not the typical people making a musical, perhaps, or making a musical in a less typical way. Um, since then, I've, I've had some opportunities, and uh, there are a lot of different ways in which and I think I'm repeating myself, and I'm not answering your question, but how producers, how I'm approached by producers, or what role producers play? What role producers play? I'll, I'll talk about the very happy experience I'm, I'm, I'm involved in now on this Never Gonna Dance, which certainly is the first thing I've ever been involved in, you know, that feels like it actually is appropriate to that street. And, you know, that Broadway street, and it fulfills a lot of the things that that street wants to you know, sing and dance about, and I'm real happy about that. And in this case, uh, a producer, and I think he's a terrific producer, had the notion that this film could make a musical, and maybe that's not the most original thought that we're having these days. But we <laughs> thought that this particular film with beautiful drum kern songs and, and a real motor, a real dance motor, you know, motored by Fred and Ginger in this film, Springtime would make a wonderful living, breathing theatrical event, and then he uh, approached a writer, or maybe a number of writers, and engaged Jeffrey Hatcher to rethink and rework this plot of this film, which are very wonderful, but the plots are wacky and all meandering. You've watched, I've watched a lot of these films now, they, they all share a very casual relationship to plot, <laughs> which is great. And, uh, and, uh, Broadway has, I think, greater uh, uh, demands on plot, and Jeffrey Hatcher has, I think, met those demands very wonderfully. And then he asked me to become involved with this, and again, I'm sure he asked other directors as well, but I'm the one who said yes. And then we really, you know, I got to start working with Jeffrey in a wonderful way to sort of see how this piece really could become more and more of a dance piece and less of a book musical. And uh, then... Uh, we got Jerry Mitchell involved, and, and he's really become the center of this as the motor of this piece is very much dance. And what Jay did in a very, I think, wonderful and perhaps traditional protosorial way is he put a team together. But he had the idea. You know, he had an idea and a passion and then went about finding a group of people to fulfill that passion. And I find that he's being very collaborative and very generous in the way he's treating the people that he's asked to get involved, and other people have become involved as well. So maybe that's the very old-fashioned model, and maybe that's a, a great old model, but that's, you know, what's happening now. You mentioned um, this sort of trend of, of film and into uh -huh. theater, um, and I wonder, this is actually quite an open question, but I wonder, um, to any of you, what your relationship is to trends? Is that something that you sort of welcome and jump upon or, or try to sort of go underneath? Or Can I sort of amend what I said a little? Yeah. Or add to it, and then I won't, I'll shut up. You know, I think, I think the reason this is happening is actually, there's a positive reason too. Mm -hmm. The positive reason is, is that musicals are cinematic, and the musicals that we love most 
move in the most cinematic ways. So th there, there is a, there's actually an artistic fruitful crossover. You know, if we all love, well, if I love a chorus line and Dream Girls the most, you know, then it's, then you can certainly easily see how those are cinematically inspired and move, you know, like a movie and move like cameras are directing your focus. So that's the good news about all these musicals which are based on films. And in fact, you know, some some, the trend. some trends are are you know have their good side, their bad side, and so forth. Um, we're falling apart. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I, I wonder, you know, if any of you want to talk a little bit about that sort of your, your relationship to that, to this particular movie or or any trend that sort of arises. If it's something that um, you feel, you know, now I'll go against it or jump on it or, or what what effect does that have? Because it sort of sweeps over, you know. Well, it's interesting. I mean, this this notion of everybody jumping on the movie bandwagon. Musicals have always been based on something, some source of material. I mean, the classic My Fair Ladies and cabarets, they didn't just sort of come out of people's heads. Um, you know, there, there's always, there's often been for our classic musicals source material. So the fact that we're now taking them from uh, or, or more taking them from movies rather than plays or books. Yeah, but I don't think it means the demise of the American musical as we're sort of being cajoled into believing by, by some of the people who are writing about that. Um, I will say, though, that we ask a tremendous amount of our audiences. We, we ask them to spend a huge amount of money uh, and that we are giving them a, a great deal of product to choose from uh, for that that money and what I believe they're looking for is they want something to go on to tell me to say for my 200 or $400 plus what the rest of the night costs me I'm going to enjoy this. So if that means I know who this person is in the show and I think I'm going to enjoy that, or I know what this story is and I think I'm going to enjoy that. Um, and I don't think that's a bad thing to respect how much we ask of our audiences when we ask them to buy a ticket from us. Uh, and what we owe them in a way of, of risk management, you know, lessening their risk that they're not going to enjoy it. We don't get too many chances to disappoint an audience before they stop coming to us. Um, you mentioned this notion of, of money, of the price that people pay, and I think that that is present in, in I think, in the minds of, of producers. Um, what or what kind of effect do you feel? What has been happening in the economy in the last few years? What kind of effect do you feel that has had in your choices as a producer or as someone who decides to move forward with a project? Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I think, you know, as we were talking earlier, it just clarifies what should be, what you think a commercial piece is and what you think a piece that should have a different kind of life. And I, I, I work on both kinds of things, and I think they're both satisfying. Um, 
I, I just, I, I'm sort of trying to remain committed to this idea that if you're choosing to put something on a commercial stage, have some belief that you think you can make it work commercially and people can come. Because it's not good for the industry when things keep closing, uh, when things don't work. I mean, I think, you know, we all have a great responsibility to each other because we work in a very small business with a small pie of audience. Don't piss them off. And I believe that. Well, I, I, I think a lot about the fact. I, um, I just try to figure out what I can do, <clears throat> what my powers are, what my my personality is, what my gifts are, what they aren't, um, and I, I keep coming back to. Um, <clears throat> the, the place that our culture is in right now, which is a very, uh, it's very explicated. It's very uh, concrete. Uh, <clears throat> there is very clear pathways for this, this, this. Everything is very well defined. And I think in some ways that's the opposite of an experience that someone might want in a theater that is an artistic one, an audience member. So I keep finding myself going back to the voice or the spirit of an individual artist that excites me in the chaos of communication that spews at me day in, day out. And I have to act on the faith that my response and my excitement by that particular unique vision or voice <clears throat> is going to be interesting to others. Um, and I can only start there. I can only start with uh, trying to give space for the voice to be heard. And the next step of, well, who wants to hear it and who's the likely person to respond to it to then tell their neighbor to come and see it is where I get very fuzzy and feel, you know, I'm over my head. Um, and I think it gets harder and harder to stick to that idea as my sense of things. Um, that that the uh, if you look in this city and probably in this country in this culture when you say theater for most people it's synonymous with Broadway and I think what Broadway as an idea is to people now in 2003 is a very different notion than it was say 50 years ago 75 years ago um and when you try to make original, distinctive work or to present the voice of someone original and unique, the accumulated tradition or legend get weighs heavier and heavier and heavier. And it becomes, do I reject it? Do I try to work within it? Um, for the individual artist and for me, I think. Um, what do you do with that? And how do you find the way? And all I can keep coming back to is it starts with one voice. Um, and, you have to, and I have to believe in that voice, and I have to believe in the importance of that voice being heard. Um, so that, I mean, this is a response to your thing about trends. I, I, I try not to think about that. Um, I try to think, well, I guess only in the sense of who might that little community, uh, what would I need to hear right now? What would surprise me? What, what would uh, provoke me? what would make 
spending $100 or $75 worth the time and the money. Um, the problem with that is because it's probably not a famous star or you know a name somebody would know or recognize, it's hard to get people in the door. Uh, and this, this is the thing I'm feeling is a very interesting problem for a theater like New York Theater Workshop. Um, over and over again, I think we have something that people, if we could get the word out, would find interesting, but we run for five weeks. And, and it doesn't, you can't accumulate in five weeks an audience. Um, Are you finding it more and more difficult to get people in the door? Uh, no, I, what I am finding right now, I think I'm finding it that it's harder to, uh, to, um, to communicate across the footlights uh -huh. in a really interesting way. I think audiences want the tried and the true and the safe right now, and especially if they're going to pay the kind of money they have to pay. They want to, to feel comfortable. They want familiarity. They want to know what they're going to get in making that huge investment. And, and then yet, that's not what they really want. You know, <laughs> what they really want, and that, uh, is adventure, surprise, you know, a journey, something exciting. And this is this is, goes to a very core element of human nature, which is we want as much, we want equally uh, order, structure, predictability, comfort. We want that as much as we want chaos, surprise, adventure. We want those things equally, right. and. Um, you know, how, how, how to manipulate that is really some, something that an artist has to think about in the theater. Um, so that when you spend $100 to go and see something like Aida, you want a Broadway show. And yet, you kind of look at, well, I cast no aspersions, but in that particular case, it didn't particularly wow me as, it didn't, get, it didn't do it for me the way some other things have when I spend $100. Uh, and it's for me, it's to do with how much of it is predictable uh, choices and design solutions and uh, all kinds of things that make that thing that are within that tradition, that are within that Broadway idea that they're trying to fulfill. Uh, and somehow for me to have it in doing that, in trying to do that. It's, it sounds, you know, clearly uh, what you're talking about is this that almost be, that becomes the producer's um, task to be almost clairvoyant and try to figure out the balance of the piece that you're. I pursuing. think about that an immense amount right. uh, of being in between these artists that I know over here that are at work and what they're trying to do, and that's the main place that I feel I have to be. But then what I have to do for them is try to figure out the way to realize what they're doing in front of some people in not an empty theater. And I um, also go back to my original childhood aspiration. I was raised in the Baptist church, and I, my first aspiration was to be a minister. Um, so I feel that's, enough, that's the other half of my brain is thinking of this is really a place where I invite people to come in and leave with some spiritual or intellectual or emotional sustenance of some kind. 
And sustenance to me, in these times, most often is laughing. Having the opportunity to laugh and, and, and look at the painful things and be able to laugh about them. Or just forget about it for a while. Let me, you know, it's great hearing sort of different, um, just different opinions and approaches as, as artists, if you will, should have. I wonder if you could talk a little bit, you know, Jim, you and I have talked about this, that even in the last few years, for me, my notions of what a producer does and what that relationship is have changed radically as I more and more sort of sit at the table in these conversations. director producer. Yeah, director-producer relationships. Um, I wonder if, if uh, you, you could talk about you know, from the point that you started, sort of in in, a, in your case, Michael, sort of being produced at a, at a level where you were dealing with producers, and in, in your case, Jim and Jordan, as producers who sort of had the say for, for the go-ahead, what do you think has been the, the, the biggest realization that you've had that, you know, some sort of assumption that you entered that game with, and now, you know, you look back and you go, oh, I, I was so wrong to think that that was what a producer did, or that that is what the relationship with the producer was. Um, because again, it's you know I, I think we there is a sort of stereotype that you think of, um, especially I can speak as a director when you hear producer, and um, it's funny how different that is depending on each producer, each producer on each project even for the. So I wonder if there's some sort of what, what, what major wisdom you sort of arrived at about this. Mm-hmm. this um, thing. I think in, in your case, sort of producer, you know, as a producer, just that open-ended. there was someone like you who cared about it all and that if people have to stand in a coach line for a long time and are aggravated by that when they sit down to watch the show it affects their experience of the show so I think those kinds of things are absolutely artistic issues and my domain I, you know, agree. I think about what kind of toilet paper is in the bathroom <laughs> unfortunately I'm serious
But as a result of doing all that, I then sort of come into other shows feeling like uh, I should do much more than maybe people expect me to be doing as a producer. Uh, and I like that. And it's a then learning curve for other people around me, but okay. <laughs> I'll learn from them, they'll learn from me. <laughs> You know, Jim touched on something uh, earlier that, that I learned when I was a producer, which was very important. You alluded to it, too. Um, it, it was really very important to get uh, the artist that I was inviting into my theater to recognize that I was interested in things apart from uh, ec the economic health of the theater. And, and I actually made a lot of mistakes, especially early on in my tenure at La Jolla, because I was trying to be responsible to a lot of people a lot of the time. And, and I felt like uh, I blurred those relationships somewhat. And over time, and I wasn't there that long, I did learn to be able to say to my producing partner, I can't go there, I can't have that conversation, that needs to be your jurisdiction. And then I found I, there was a, a much greater sense of trust and just truth in in the kind of discussions I was having with artists because you know I would you know I, I'm a big fan of the bare bones aesthetic and I was often promoting that kind of aesthetic where something can be imagistic or transformational and people were suspect that I just wanted the set to be cheaper. Uh, so it really took a, it really did take a couple of years to build that kind of trust. Um, so that was that was important in that non in, in that nonprofit structure for me, but also to, to to know who I was serving when. Is I mean, talk about a service industry. The artistic director is you know a big server, as the producer is a big server. Um, you know, in my most positive in my most positive experience as a producer in, in that world was really blurry because it was the one I was asked to be the most directorial. You know, and I, and I think that really helped me understand what I really wanted to do and real, where, where I really wanted to go. When I recognized that, oh, you know, I'm being helpful on this project because they're in need of a directorial eye. And I was intrusive when there was a very strong directorial eye that might have been different than my directorial eye. So I recognized, you should get out of this and go be director again. So. Um, what was your question? Yeah, just <laughs> what wisdom you can impart on us that in the time that you've been doing this, uh, uh, some sort of uh, perception or thought that has changed radically? Well, one thing was when I first came to the job, I assumed that my experience and interests as a director would be a great asset to my functioning as an artistic director. And to some degree that was true, but I never had had any sense of, I hadn't expected it to be a complex thing. Um, and, and what Michael just said, that my directorial eye is not necessarily anybody else's. Uh, so I had to learn to say, well, you know, in that scene, uh, uh, um, don't you think she should maybe pick up the teacup three sentences later? Um, and that wasn't necessarily helpful. <laughs> um, so I've learned to, to be able to translate, to ask the question, or to uh, 
you know, to say, here's my thought. If I were directing this play, my impulse would be that you would pick up the teacup there, and here's why I would have that. You do with that what you want to do with it. Um, sometimes that's helpful, sometimes it's not. Or sometimes it leads to another discussion. Well, it's always helpful to get it out there. Yeah. You know, that's always helpful. So. I think um, another thing that I'm thinking a lot about and learning about is the... Um, the need for directors and designers to work in the place that they are and to understand the significance of uh, the audience's arrival in the room to sit down and take in what's in front of you um, is in some ways so much more important than any design choices that are made on stage. Um, <clears throat> that when an audience's expectation of coming to see something on East 4th Street is very different than going to Lincoln Center or going to a Broadway theater. And I often find director designers, when they're first showing you the set, I feel like, well, this is sort of, you're proposing the $1.98 version on East 4th Street of what you imagine in some big grand theater that maybe is a regional theater or a Broadway theater. And you're actually here in this space, and there's a beautiful way to realize everybody's vision of this piece in this room. Um, I'm just going to say, uh, recently I saw a production of Meshuggah, um, which was an absolutely beautiful example of limited resources financially to make an exquisite physical production. A beautiful, beautiful design, beautiful acting, beautiful writing. Um, and I could also imagine a production that got much more literal, had much more scenery, uh, but not in a 99-seat theater row theater. You know. It felt really appropriate and therefore very powerful. But I think that's something that is uh, deep in our culture right now, <clears throat> that that contextual thing for people is really important, and we're slow in the theater to pick this up. I think that that, what you just hit on so perfectly, is the sort of core, one of the core um, skills of a producer, particularly when, you know, again, we were talking about what becomes commercial work goes someplace else. You know, having a piece and saying, this works, you know, if you look at the landscape of where you can present something and what it's going to mean to an audience to come see it in different places, placing it um, is half the battle. The right piece in the wrong place is the wrong piece. So um, we'll take a little time now to open it up uh, to questions before we run out of time. Um, so if there are any questions, yes? Um, Mike, you spoke a little bit earlier that Jim has a unique net but when to come into the process and when to be out of it. Could you guys maybe discuss about when is it good for a producer to be there? Well, my response is that that is a relationship that has evolved because we're two people. And, and that, that the answer, the truthful answer to that is that it depends who you're working with and who you're collaborating with. And then you will know how to read each other's signals. Um, 
And I think you always, I, when I was a producer, I tried very hard to give people space, give people room, and to give myself the opportunity to have a new idea. You know, not for the sake of a new idea, but to actually move on from one thing to the next, and that might take a couple of days, it might take a week. In the best of possible worlds, it's a couple of weeks. You know, so it varies from project to project, but it, it's hardly continuous. That seems that that seems disruptive. I mean, some particular thing I can answer that that I have learned is um, when I first started doing this, I had similar experience to Jordan, that I had to be <coughs> hovering every <laughs> minute. Um, <clears throat> and now I think I selectively hover. Uh, I'm often around, but I'm not necessarily in the theater at every preview to watch every single performance. In fact, I found that's counterproductive to what I can actually contribute. That if I go now and then wait a few performances well, because things are shaking down or things new ideas are being brought in, that I'm very much more useful being someone who's really educated about what's intended uh, to be able to say at the fourth preview, when I saw it the last time on the first preview, this is what I saw tonight. And, you know, I think you may, and if you were intending that, then you're there, but if you're intending that, you're not there yet. So that's something I've had to learn. But I am often around, even on those nights that I'm not watching, in the lobby or sticking my head in or around afterwards. Are you there at all during the rehearsal process? Well, I'm, you know, it's usually upstairs. Um, so I'm not actually in the room very much, but I'm around it a lot, all the time. Um, I, I would offer the same answer. I think it's really, it depends who and when. Um, it's important for me, though, to be there more than not because I don't want my coming to be the sort of judgment moment. Yeah. Um, part of being on the collaborative team means that you're on the same team. It's not, we're going to show the producer what we have in yes or no, or I'll pay for that or I won't. You know, we're, we're making something together. Um, but as Jim was saying, and Michael was saying, giving the space to do the work that we've discussed and then discuss again is, is crucial. And I just have to add that having worked with, with Jim, that, that it, it, in fact, and I think what we really agree is that the huge difference to have had a relationship rather than the dissent of the producer yeah you know, at a certain period, which then becomes a set of, you know, father shows up. Um, and I know something's a huge investment for you. I, I think also another truthful answer is for me, uh, when we have Stephen Daldry in the building working, uh, you know, he's pretty self-sufficient and uh, has much experience and, and kind of goes along and I drop in periodically. Whereas with a director who has much less experience, um, I'm, I'm a little bit more attentive and a little bit more um, on, the, on my toes. So it also depends on each case, each person, and each personality. Um, it's a different set of rules. And, and part of what's interesting about it is how each time it's a new time. And 
there are no rules and you have to make them up. In fact, we used to have a program at New York Theatre Workshop called the New Directors Project, which was <clears throat> every year four directors got chosen. I, I was one of them. In the late 80s. Yes. Uh, and mm -hmm. produced... Um, and, and when I got here, there had been four years of four directors, so there were 16 directors who had gone through this program. And what I found really interesting was that none of them really had ever been back to work in the theater. And I went through the first two years of it, and I realized that when the, when the production that we had done together closed, my natural instinct or my natural feeling was, well, now we know each other. And the next time we work together is going to be a really good and productive relationship. And there was no capacity for that. Um, so that was something that was very important for me to change, is that, that, it, that um, theater is so profoundly about relationships. That's all it is. It, it is between people. And you can't legislate that. You can't predict that. Uh, it happens every second. It's reinvented as you go along. And I think um, that that director-producer relationship is, as I can see it in my experience, the most critical one, to have a, have a good relationship there. And trust and uh, even a capacity, uh, you know, to understand how you disagree or understand how you get mad at each other but still listen to each other. Um, or to be able to say shut up and leave me alone and not have you know someone be upset. Um, Another question. Uh, back to the I'm curious how did you arrive at the title of producer? What journey did you take to get to that point? Did everybody hear that? Yeah. Um, I, I left that title behind. Um, it, it, it was sort of handed to me for a time, and, and, and then I felt that it wasn't the best title for me and the best job for me. So I'll move on to people who hold that title. <laughs> um, again, with my doc show as my first experience, um, it all sort of happened really rather organically as as that is to say, um, and I didn't quite get that I was producing it until it was done, <laughs> truly. Um, I just didn't. It wasn't like I've hung out a shingle, I'm a producer, and now I'm going to look for projects. Um, we just sort of started to put it together and found this space and then put in some designers, and then it was, now we're marketing it. Um, and, and then I said, oh, okay, I guess I produced this. Uh, Arrived at producer. I'm, you know, artistic director. But I, I would say, well, really, if you go way, way back, it's that minister thing at four years old. But um, I think I started out as a director and um, spent some time in two rather extraordinary not-for-profit theaters, the public theater in the 70s and the arena stage in Washington in the 80s. And I, I got to be around two inspiring people, Joe Papp and Zola Chandler. <clears throat> and um, 
I think in those that, that period, I understood that what they were doing was to try and make a place for a conversation to happen, uh, a vital conversation. And I really responded to that and, and still think mainly about that as I guess. So that was that was my journey to it is that I found other people that did it really well and got excited by them. We make it the most vital kind of entertainment. Well, I, the only thing I think I immediately respond to is that it's not going to be by trying to reproduce the idea of the legend. The idea. That's dead. That's going to turn the theater into the opera house. And I, I don't know much more beyond that. <laughs> um, <clears throat> in, in a sense, I feel like every time I meet an interesting artist, a director, a playwright, an actor, and I start to fantasize about what's possible with that person between us. Um, I feel like we're reinventing theater in that little teeny way, and you never, I never know where that's going to go. Um, and I, you know, I guess that's my answer to your question. It, you just keep doing it, and you keep responding to somebody that's uh, got a vision. I mean, it's kind of an, an idea, a voice. I think um, my thought on that, and I, I obviously sort of grapple with this daily, um, is to go towards where you think the world is changing and the culture is changing rather than away from it. Um, to understand that and embrace that our audiences come to us with new and changing vocabularies, um, and it's okay, and it's, it's not more than okay, it's crucial that the theater we're making is informed by what's happening on those thousand cable channels, what's happening yep. in the movie theaters, what's happening on the internet. Our audiences are, are different. We, we are different. We also live in this world all of us that create theater, and our world changes and moves, and so our, our theater has to change and move. Um, where I think, though, we need to be, or, or what I try to be thinking about is, if we're going to make a piece of theater, it has to have a compelling reason to be live, a compelling reason why we're requiring people to come to us together to watch it, 
because, as you say, since there are those thousand channels, you know, we can make you can make a movie for the same price as you can make a, a commercial play. So it's not about the money anymore. Now it has to be. This is live because there are true and fundamental reasons in the piece that we need to present it live. And then we're not competing <coughs> movies or film. We're, we're all doing what we do well. I, I, this is truly for our season for our uh, I want to say revival of the promises that those that Well, I hate the word revivals because it implies that it's dead yeah. already, and I don't. <laughs> I don't see it that way. So, um, I had two thoughts of what you said and what you said about um, embracing change and reinventing things. Uh, uh, after September 11th, we we had a show that had just opened on September 10th. And we stopped, we had to stop because the city was closed below 14th Street until four days later. And the night that we resumed performances, um, I was in the room in the auditorium and I couldn't take my eyes off the audience. I couldn't watch the play. I watched the audience. And what I understood was it really profoundly did not matter what was up on the stage. What was important was they were in this room together, um, behaving communally and communicating subconsciously together. And this ritual meant so much to people. That, and then as I was waiting in the lobby for friends to come out, people who are our members were coming by me saying, thank you for doing this performance tonight. It really meant everything for me to be here. And I think that sense of um, the immediacy and the sense of community that an audience becomes is our best bet for uh, you know, eternal survival. There's no way to beat it. And it's, it's a, an essential human experience to be in a group looking in one direction, behaving together without having to agree on it, that we just do it. And, and uh, we're pack animals. So I think that's, that's the most important thing. Another thing I think about is someone like Carol Churchill, if you look at her body of work over an amazing three or four decades. Um, our, our last experience with her was Far Away, which is a play that's 55 minutes long. Uh, and the language palette is very minimal. There are so few words in it. And you go back and look at a play that we did 12 years ago called Life Shining in Buckinghamshire. It's almost three hours long. It is beautifully but densely written, language heavy. And I see in her an artist who is reinventing herself for what what is our experience as humans now. We don't use language the way we did. Language is different now. And she has found this way. So I think that's things like that are what the artists, you all, are really going to be doing to redefine these things. I think uh, I, you know having seen and, and sort of um, been somewhat part of the process of being at the workshop with Far Away, it's, it's also amazing to see someone like Joe Churchill who is reacting to uh, the contemporary sort of situation in the world without mimicking it, if that makes any sense. So she's, she's reacting to the fact that, you know, what's happening to language and what's happening, but it isn't, she isn't saying, so now my play must have 
the internet and cable, you know, it, it, she's right. simply reacting to it and exploring a theatrical landscape for that conversation. And I think that's essential and the, the air tends to be to try to explore the cinematic of the theater, to try to explore, you know, at least for my taste, but rather try to respond to that in the theatrical, which I think she does quite successfully.
complicated, ambiguous relationships of, of, of clashing people. Uh, nobody's really happy in this show. Um, but so you know, but still kind of keeping our core audience, but then pushing out the circle a little bit wider and wider and wider because it's never going to commercially work if you just say, okay, we only appeal to one specific group who is completely outside of our normal circle. It's pushing the circle, not just leaping over the here in the commercial world. Well, I, I think there's a lot of a lot of discussion on that question. <clears throat> I think the thing that none of us would want is uh, theater that has to appeal to everyone or to a big wide demographic, because then we might as well just go and work for NBC or you know go work for a TV network because that's essentially programming chosen by uh, survey and demographics, and then they make programs that fit that. And I don't think anybody wants that. I think that what we probably want is a theater, an art form, as expressed in this culture, where everyone that's part of it finds something of interest. And I don't necessarily think we should be thinking about, I have to go and see myself on stage. I mean, I, I think that's true up to a point. But part of the power of theater is metaphor, that you go to the theater and you find yourself in someone who doesn't live in your circumstances or in your community and that you have a sense of uh, commonality it's, it's part of what we can offer is that the world is populated by human beings who have very different experience and some very common experience as well um, I, I do I think that the theater is trapped uh, in certain things no doubt no doubt and I think uh, of Coming here, I stopped off. Uh, we're doing a co-production of a uh, wonderful uh, performer, writer, Will Power, who uh, is in the Hip Hop Theater Festival, PS122. And he is African American. But my impulse, my, my excitement about him as an artist in our community is the way he makes theater, his perspective on what theater is and what he's trying to do is is very exciting to me because he's doing new things. He's trying to do something different. Um, and, and I think it's not only whose stories are being told, but how they're told and how they're told in new and interesting ways that can push the art form itself forward in the different directions. So I think it's a big, 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 big conversation with no answers, but a lot, a lot of questions. And we have to acknowledge that who you are also affects how you speak and how you Absolutely. tell stories. So. Yeah. Absolutely. I think we have time for, for your second Go ahead. This issue of, of expanding audiences. I think we have a like, huge problem in the theater in our, in our criticism, our journalist criticism. Um, oh. <laughs> gotta say it. Um, <laughs> what always sort of troubles me is in, in music, music press, you know, there's a classical reviewer, there's a rock reviewer, there's a reggae reviewer. These are different kinds. It's not music is music is music. The different people who judge a piece of, of music by the standard of its genre, not music. Um, <laughs> we 
have theater critics that can review anything. Um, and you know, it's it's sort of first string or second string or third string or it's kind of the size of the house. Um, I don't know that we've tackled this this expanding audiences question without involving our journalists um, and, and pushing for that for people who could possibly like what we're doing to come and judge and then be able to communicate to the audience who might enjoy it themselves to come see it. We're actually out of time, uh, so we should stop here. And I just want to thank Michael Jordan and Jim for uh, chatting about adventures. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Masters of the Stage. This program was made possible by support from Stage Directors and Choreographers Society, the National Labor Union, celebrating five decades representing the needs and aspirations of its members.